That song that we just sang, or the choir sang and we joined in. That's kind of a neat way to do that song. The song starts, and then we join in, and more people join in. I can see Jesus. That's how it started. I can see Jesus. But can you? And what if you can't? What if you want to see Jesus? What if you need to see him as you understand him to be, as he, you expect him to be, and yet he's not there? You don't see him. The song that we sang is a song of, of faith. It's a song of faith because it's a song about believing what we don't yet see. Hubert had said, well, seeing is believing. But what if not seeing is believing? If faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence, if faith is the evidence of things that we don't yet see, then what if faith is not seeing and believing? Perhaps you've not thought of it that way before, that to not see, it seems to us that, well, if I could see it, I'd believe it. Could it be better, actually, to not see? Didn't Jesus himself say, more blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe? Today I want us to hear a story, a story about someone who did not see, and it was in what he did not see that that is where he believed. Now, sometimes it's helpful to hear a story from the perspective of the person that experienced it. I could talk about it, I could explain it, but sometimes there's just something different about hearing it firsthand. So if you would in, indulge me just a little bit this morning... I'd like to step into another person. And I'd like us to hear this story, a story perhaps we're somewhat aware of, but I'd like us to hear it from his perspective. The robe is how you know that it's, it's not Bob anymore. It's somebody else. <laughs> now, who I am, my, my name doesn't, doesn't really matter so much. What, just, just think of me as a disciple whom Jesus loved. That's really what matters for both of us. But what I want to tell you today is not really about myself. I want to tell you about a time when I didn't see, and that's when. I believed. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Let me back up. Let me rewind a few days. Thursday. It's been in the midst of a, of a very busy week. We haven't had a week like this before. It was, it was just a few days earlier that we came into Jerusalem, that Jesus arrived back in Jerusalem a week ahead of the Passover festivals. And the crowds are just incredible. And they are welcoming him and they're crying out, Hallelujah, Hosanna to the Son of David. They are receiving and embracing and extolling him as their Messiah. And day by day, it seems like the expectancy and the tension 
continues to rise. Something is going to happen. You can feel it in the air. And on Thursday, the day before Passover, the day of the preparation, Jesus sends Peter and I to go and to prepare, well, in a place that he had prepared for us. To go and prepare for us to eat the Passover meal together. And so we did. We, we found an upper room, and that's where we made things ready. And we gathered together with Jesus. Now, Passover is a longer meal than normal. It's an extended time together because it's meant to be a teaching meal. It tells a story. But this one seemed even longer because Jesus had so much that he wanted to tell us. In fact, he started the, he started the meal teaching. He took for himself the role of a servant. And he, he went around the table washing each of our feet. He told us that one of us who would there join us at the table would later betray him. We begin to focus then on who would that be? Which one of us might it be? When in reality, before it was all over, every one of us would fail him. He told us that he was going away, but that he was going away to prepare a place for us, a place for us in his Father's house that we would live with his Father. He said that it was good that he go away because that we would do greater things than he had done. As incredible as that sound, how could we do any of the kind of things that we had seen him do? but greater things than these that we would do because he was going to the Father. Somewhere along the way, after the supper, in the midst of his teaching things to us, he said, arise, let us go from here. And we went out of the city from that southwest corner of the city, the Essene Quarter. We went, we went out the gate. We went across the valley through the vineyards. And there he described to us how the branches on the vine, they get their life from the vine itself, and that life flows from the vine through the branches, and that is how they and we can bear fruit. We went across the Kidron Valley. We walked about two miles total from where we had had the supper over to a place at the foot of the Mount of Olives, and that area is covered with groves, orchards of olive trees. That's why it's called the Mount of Olives, really. And, and there in the midst of all those groves of trees, there's, the, there's a cave. And in the cave, there's these olive presses. And it was to that cave called Gethsemane. That's where he took us. And, he, and, he, and that was a place where he intended for us to be able to get some shelter and to be able to rest. But he asked that Peter and James and I would go a few steps out of the cave, a few steps away that he needed to pray. And he asked us to watch and wait with him. But as Jesus took time to pray, we didn't watch with him. It had been a long day. Our eyelids were heavy. And over and again, we fell asleep. Well, Jesus woke us up just before the mob came, led by Judas, the betrayer. And they, they arrested Jesus and the rest of us scattered. We ran away in fear. I followed them 
from a, a safe distance, and they took Jesus to the high priest's house. And there they had kind of a, a sham trial. They accused him of blasphemy and other things. And they, they, they determined that they would hand him over at the earliest they could. At the break of dawn, they would bring him over to Pilate's palace, where Herod the Great had established a palace for himself there at the uh, west side of the city. And they're standing before now Pilate's residence. They brought Jesus and accused him. Knowing that they could not do what they intended, there was only Pilate who could actually put him to death. Well, Pilate didn't seem to really want to be bothered by all this. And, and all the, what more, he, he, seemed to, he seemed to resent them for even trying to manipulate him in this way. But we thought, maybe at first, hearing and seeing these things, that Pilate was actually going to release him. Their plan would fail. But no, there was enough corruption. In the abundance of corruption assembled that morning, Pilate gave in to their demands, and Jesus, the only innocent one among them, was sent away to be crucified. At the cross, at the cross we stood before, my mother stood there holding her sister Mary, Jesus' mother. And some of Jesus' last words from the cross were looking at me and looking at his mother. He entrusted, as her, her eldest son, his responsibility, he entrusted her care and provisions to me from that point on. It was amazing to me that in the time of such a torturous death, here he was considering how he would provide for her. In reality, there in his death, he was providing for all of our needs. I just didn't realize it yet. After he died, two prominent men in Jerusalem, the teacher named Nicodemus, who was a member of the council. He had, he had witnessed it all. He'd seen what they had done. And then with him, a man named Joseph, a wealthy man. They received permission from Pilate, and they took his body down from the cross. And because the hour was late, that it was almost sundown, Sabbath was about to start, where you couldn't be out, and you certainly couldn't on the Sabbath be handling a body. And so they took him, and they quickly moved his body to a grave, it was a tomb right nearby that, in fact, Joseph had, had recently prepared for himself and for his own family. Nobody had yet been placed in this tomb. And now Jesus, in his death, would take Joseph's place. Sabbath is coming. And so they hurriedly put him there and sealed the tomb, and they went away. Now the rest of us, because it's now the Sabbath and we cannot be out and about, we can't be taking a chance of being accused of breaking some of the Sabbath laws now that Jesus is not there to protect us and defend us against the Pharisees. And so we're hiding in fear. We're thinking, if they have just done this to Jesus, then what will they do to us? Jesus himself had said, even while he carried the cross, he said, if they will do this in the green, what will they do in the dry? 
What are they going to do to us? What is going to happen? Who's going to be arrested next once the Sabbath and the Passover festivals are over? Well, the day after the Sabbath ended, it happened. Early in the morning, I heard a commotion at the gate. I looked over at Peter, and Peter had just been a wreck. He was, he was in despair. He couldn't let go of how in our Lord's last night that he had failed him, he had denied him. Have you ever been in that place where you felt that with what I've done, there's no way that he would ever receive me again? I've forfeited any place, any relationship that I could ever have with him have you felt that before? That's where Peter was. If that was, if, that, if that was the guards there at the gate, then Peter was ready to hand himself over right then. But it wasn't the guards. It was a familiar sound that we heard calling our name, somewhat frantically. It was the voice of Mary from Magdala. Mary, who had followed Jesus with us, well, practically from the beginning in Galilee. And so we run downstairs and, we, and we, we, we open the gate and we let her in and she's frantic. And she, she, she says that, that they, had, they had gone early in the morning. She said, I went there with, with, with Joanna and with Salome, your mother, and some other ladies. We went to the tomb and we were going to then finish the washings and the anointings that are necessary for a right and decent and honorable burial. And we were going to do that, but as we approached the tomb, I looked and I saw that somebody else had been there, that the tomb had been opened. I just know it. They have stolen his body. I said, as she's frantic, she's, she's emotional, she's, she's irrational. You, you know how women can be. So I tried to calm her down, and I said, well, you, you said there were other women with you. Where are they? They apparently didn't see these things. She said, no, 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 I left them at the tomb. I, as soon as I saw the tomb open, I ran back to tell you, you've got to come and see. I, they've stolen his body, and I don't know where it is. Okay, so we guess we're running to the tomb, and, and so we, we, we take off, and we race to the tomb. Now, it's not a short distance. It's, it's across the city and out, outside the walls on the other side, and, and uh, it's slightly uphill. Now, me being younger and more athletic than Peter was, I got there first. But I'm not the impetuous one. I'm not just going to rush in. And so I just hung back, and I'm thinking, I'm looking around. There's the, the stone moved away from the entrance just the way that Mary had said. And um, there, there's a bit of light coming up now as the, as the dawn has broken, and, and, and the sun's coming up, and I... I I bowed down. You see, the, the entrance of the tomb is only about that high. And so if you want to see, you're going to have to bow down. And so I bowed to look inside the tomb. And what I could make out was there, where the body would have been, I could see the grave cloth, that which they would wrap the body in. I could see it was there, but it seemed flat. It seemed empty. Well, I heard... Peter puffing up behind me, and so I, I backed away from the tomb. If, if we were going to go in, I'd let Peter go in first. There, there might be spiders. Who knows what? And so, Peter, not really being the 
cautious and reflective and considering things before he, he, he takes action. Peter runs up. You could call it running. And he, and he just rushes right on into the tomb. He goes inside and there he sees that, well, inside the tomb, in the chamber, there's over on the one side, against one wall, there's this bench or shelf that has been carved out. And there's a, there's a marble slab laid on top of that. And that's the preparation bench. That's where you would first bring the body, and there you would lay the body. And that's where the washings and the anointing, that which is needed for a proper Jewish burial, would happen. And then after that had been done, and the, and the body had again been wrapped properly in the, in the cloth used, then the body would be slid into these long niches that were carved back into the stone wall around the other sides of the tomb. And that would be the longer resting place for the body. Peter had rushed in to see what was inside, and so, well, I followed him. And we stood there in the tomb, and we could see the grave cloth there, laying as it was. And we could see the, the face covering wrapped up and folded and, and laid neatly over here. But there was no body, not there on the bench not stuffed into one of those niches, his body wasn't there. Mary must have been right. Somebody's come and stolen the body, but yet that didn't make any sense. Because if they were going to steal the body, well, who would first take the time and trouble to unwrap the body before stealing it? Because then they're carrying out of there an unclean, unclothed corpse. That would be kind of awkward, don't you think? And who would do this? His main enemies were the priests and the Pharisees. And they're not going to defile themselves by carting away a body, especially not on this high, holy Sabbath day in the midst of the Passover festivals. And there, in that empty tomb, in the midst of what I did not see, because his body wasn't there. Then, like the sunlight rising from the east, light seemed to come into my soul. And I got it. I saw it. You see, up to then, we did not understand the scriptures that said that Jesus must die and rise from the dead. But now... It dawned on me, because of what I was not seeing, his body wasn't there, that I believed. Why had it taken us so long? I mean, Jesus himself had told us so plainly that he would be arrested and handed over and he would be delivered to death and on the third day he would rise again. He'd said it many times, why had we not believed it? You're probably wondering the same. But it's not like humanity is really good at believing God, are we? I mean, if it was a matter of, well, God said it, so I guess that settles it. I believe it. But that's not always how it works with us, is it? It's more like, did God really say? Or maybe it's, well, it seems that God has said this, but I'm not so sure that's true from my experience. 
and we put ourselves in the place of weighing and deciding if what God said really could be true. So, yeah, we're not really good at believing God. And yet, his scriptures had been so clear that even in the, even in the Holy Scriptures, God had plainly said it. Why, why back in the prophet Isaiah, Jesus loved to quote Isaiah to us. And in Isaiah it says, he was pierced for our transgressions. That he was crushed for our sins. Upon him was the judgment that brought us peace with God. And by his wounds, we are healed. He was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the sins of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, those criminals that he was crucified with, and with a rich man, Joseph, in his death. And when his soul makes an offering for our guilt, he will see his children. God will prolong his days. Oh, wait a minute, Isaiah. How is it that they make his grave with criminals, that he's with a rich man in his death, and yet he's going to see his children? He's going to prolong his days. How can those two go together? Well, God would raise him from the dead. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. He would suffer, and yet he would see. By knowledge of him, God's righteous servant, by knowing him, he will make many right with God. David, several hundred years before Isaiah, David had said, God, you will not abandon my soul in death. This is David's hope. You know, and that was a line that, that Peter and I would take into our preaching. Paul would later pick it up and run with it all over the world. David's hope was this, that God will not abandon my soul in death. Do you wonder sometime if God will abandon you? Can you really trust him? David's hope through what he did, both good and bad. David's hope was this, God, you will not abandon my soul in death because you will not let your Holy One, the Messiah, undergo decay. That before the decay process would start, that God had committed to raising his Messiah from the dead. It's what I didn't see in his tomb that was what I really needed to believe. That God had said it. That Jesus would die for us, but God had said he wouldn't stay dead. And so, what do we do now? Well, we went home. What else was there to do? We didn't know what we were supposed to do next. I'm, I'm, I'm believing Jesus must be risen. Peter is not so sure. It's like he can't permit himself to hope. And he's not sure that Jesus would want to see him even if he really had risen. Mary is inconsolable. And so we went back to our, our, our house, and Mary stayed there waiting by the tomb. And while she's there, she told us later, while she's there, tears flowing down her face. At one point, she too bowed to look in, wanting to see what it is that we had seen inside. And yet she saw more than we did. When she looked in, 
She looked in, and, and, the, and the, the tomb was filled with some kind of brilliance. And there's an angel on this side of that burial bench, and there's an angel on that side of that burial, burial bench, and there's the cloth, and, and still stained with some of Jesus' blood there in the center. And when she described it to me later, I knew immediately what she was describing, that God had taken his tomb and had turned it into a temple. That there what Mary was seeing with the angels on either side of that bloodied burial bench, what Mary was seeing was what the priest would see only once a year inside the very holiest place of the temple. There where the Ark of the Covenant would sit and once a year the priest would come in and the top of that Ark of the Covenant, that box that held those broken tablets of God's law, that law which we could not keep, that there in over the top of that box was a covering called God's mercy seat. And on that covering, on the top of God's ark, there was an angel, a golden angel on one side and the other facing in as if they were guarding the presence. And it was there in between that once a year the blood of the atonement the blood of the satisfaction of the guilt of our sins would there be sprinkled on God's mercy seat that our guilt could be forgiven. And that's what God was showing Mary when she bowed to look and to see that Jesus himself was the satisfaction for our sin. It wasn't the first time that God had used temple imagery to help us to understand Jesus' purpose. In fact, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the baptizer pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then along the way, as they confronted him and contested him, Jesus asked him for a sign to show some miracle, and Jesus said, I'll give you this one. He says, You destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. They laughed at him. They mocked him. They ridiculed. You could rebuild this temple. Well, Herod's temple took over 40 years to build. It still wasn't finished. And you say you would build it in three days? Who do you think you are? But he wasn't talking about a temple merely of stone. He realized only later that he was talking about his own body. He was talking about himself as the very presence of God in his life, the presence of God dwelling with us. So Mary looks in, back at the tomb. She sees these angels. Well, will they see her? And they see her tears, and the angel says, Woman, why are you weeping? And she tells to them the same thing she's told to all the rest of us. They have taken away his body, and I don't know where they have taken him. And she backs away, realizing, maybe too late, that these guys in there, in there might be part of this. They might be with, though, whoever it was that stole the body. Mary backs away, and she turns, and there's another man standing there in this garden. He seems to have some sense of authority. She, she figures, well, maybe he's in charge. She'll make her request one more time. Sir, if you have taken him away, please just tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him from there. And then Jesus. Jesus who said to us earlier, he said to us, My sheep hear my voice. 
and I know their name, and I call them by name. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And hearing her call his name, that's when Mary could see. When he called to his own by name, and then she knew it's Jesus, and she says, Rabboni, my teacher. You see, in that moment, Mary's sorrow turned to joy. Mary's grief turned to gladness. Mary's despair turned to hope. And so it is with anyone at the time when you realize that Jesus is not dead. Jesus who died for us is risen again. That Jesus is victorious over sin and death. That Jesus comes for us. That Jesus calls to us. That Jesus calls us out by name. And that changes everything. And so Mary must have thrown herself around him. He had to tell her, Mary, don't cling to me now. I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go and tell my brothers that I ascend to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. And so Mary came running back to us to tell us that she had seen Jesus and that he was ascending to his Father in heaven for us. Now, when she came and told the rest of us, and we had by that time in the morning gathered together, and she found us and she told us, and I was excited. I was already beginning to believe, and yet most of the guys didn't. They thought these women are just getting carried away, that they're, they're wishing for what they want to have happen, but it can't really be. They were trying to be practical. They were trying to be pragmatic. They were trying to control expectations and maintain some rationality around us. They didn't believe. They were afraid to believe. And through the day, well, Peter came back, and Peter said that the Lord had come to him, that he had seen Jesus, and Jesus had been so graciously forgiving of, of him. And I know what that meant to Peter, how he had been feeling about himself, and for the, for the Lord to actually receive him and embrace him. I knew it wasn't just Peter, that we all needed that same forgiveness because all we like sheep had fled away. And the Lord had laid on him our sin. And if he was risen, then we could be forgiven. And so there we are, gathered together along the way, two, two more come back who had journeyed to Emmaus, and they said they had seen the Lord on the way there, and they had actually eaten with him. And they came back excited to tell us, and still most of the group wasn't sure. But then, while we're together, again in that upper room, and the doors are locked, the door is barred, because we know the authorities might be coming for us. Now, I was believing Jesus is risen. What did I have to be afraid of? Well, I wasn't out looking for them either. There we were in the upper room. And then, in a moment, Jesus was in there with us. How did he get in? How did he come through? It's like he's a spirit and he comes right through the door, right through the walls. But he wasn't a spirit. He was real. He was solid. He was flesh and bones. In fact, he even took some bread that we gave him, he took some bread and he ate it in front of us so we could see that, that a spirit does not eat and have flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
That's another temple analogy, by the way. You've heard of the show bread? It's a Jewish joke. So there, as he appears to us, what does he say to us? Shalom. Peace. And he shows us how it is that we now can have peace. He shows us the wounds on his hands. He shows us where the spear had been thrust into his side. And he says, don't be unbelieving, but believe. And believing in him now, he commissions us. That even as we who believe have been forgiven in his name, that we are the ones now to go and declare his forgiveness to others. And we are the ones to warn those who do not believe and are not forgiven that there's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we might be saved. And so Jesus has sent us. And so we go. Now, in light of that reality, in light of Jesus' final commission, it leaves me with two questions. The charge that he gives to us to continue his ministry, that, that is that God was in Jesus, reconciling the world back to himself. And he has committed to us, he's put in our hands the message of God's reconciliation that humanity can be made back into right relationship with God again. Rebels can be restored. And that charge, that reality, it leaves me with two questions for us today. The first one is, if you are forgiven, if you have, like me, believed in Jesus, you are forgiven in his name, If you do have life in Jesus, then who are you telling it to? His charge was simple. To tell others that they can be forgiven in Jesus. And to tell those who do not believe in him that there's no other way for them to be forgiven and made right with God except in Jesus. I don't see this as a burden that he's laid on us. Think of it. God's greatest work. He is now entrusted into our hands. We're the ones to carry it out. That which Jesus did for three years. As he traveled all over Judea and Galilee and even beyond. And told people, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Because of your faith, your sins are forgiven. He gives that message, that declaration, now to us. He's no longer doing any of that except that he does it through you and I as we would tell someone that he leads us to to believe in Jesus that they might have his life. If you've seen the truth that Jesus is risen, go and find someone else to tell. That's what you do. That's what Mary did. That's what the other women did. And pause to think about that for a minute. If we were designing the story for, for authority in the first century, the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection would not be the women. Nothing against women, but in the first century, theirs was not the testimony that carried the weight of authority in the, in the society of the day. And yet that's exactly the way that Jesus does it. You think, well, who am I 
Who would believe me? I'm not sure I even know enough to tell somebody. If you know that Jesus Christ died for our sins and is risen from the dead, and that by believing, trusting God in Jesus, anyone who believes in him can be forgiven by God, is forgiven by God, you know enough to tell somebody else. Just like these women did. Brought out of despair into hope, they rushed to tell others, to share that with others. That's what the two on the road did. And if you know that Jesus is risen, that's what you and I do too. That's just what we do. It's what God has given us to do. That leads me to a second question. On the other side of that is the question to ask, are you forgiven? Maybe you're here this morning. Maybe you've been around church for a while. Maybe church is something that you do, and especially in certain times of the year. But are you forgiven in Jesus? Are you in right relationship with God? Would you, would you be able to show up on God's doorstep and know that you would be accepted, that indeed Jesus has made a place for you in his Father's house? Are you sure of that? We know that we're guilty because we know ourselves. But do you know that in Jesus you are forgiven? Because you can know that. You can, you can seal that right here, right now, this morning. Right where you are, right where you sit. In the quietness of your own heart, you could bow your head in prayer and you could say, God, I believe you concerning Jesus, your son. That because you loved me, you sent Jesus into the world to die for my guilt, for my sin. The strong in place of the weak. That just by trusting you for his death in my place, that you would forgive me. You would welcome me home. If you believe God concerning Jesus, you are forgiven. In Jesus' name. In fact, everything that John told us this morning, all the things that are written in his Gospels, he says, I wrote these things so that you could believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in him, you can have eternal life in his name. You can have a life, a right relationship again with God that, that begins already today and that will stretch all the way into God's new heaven and new earth and on into eternity forever, never ending. Just by being willing to say, God, I believe you concerning Jesus. So with that question, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? There must be somebody that you would pray for. Maybe, maybe even this is your prayer. Father, we do pray for one needing to know that they are forgiven in Jesus. Father, we pray that right now even, perhaps, or as the result of a conversation that we might have with them today or tomorrow, sometime this next week, that they would say, yes, God, I believe you concerning Jesus. That because you loved me, you sent him to take my place in death, not just Joseph's, to give me life forever with you, not because of what I've done, but because 
I'm willing to accept what and trust in what Jesus has done for me. God, I believe you concerning Jesus as my Savior. I believe you, I trust you for eternal life that you would give me because of Jesus. Lord, help us to take that message to the people around us. Help us to go to others, to, to invite them in to your family, to build one another up in a living faith of our loving Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>